Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. This is Marco Ciappelli, and today on ITSP Magazine, we're talking about a topic that couldn't be more fitting than this, I believe, in the redefining society. It's, uh, it's something that maybe as regular people, citizens walking around this globe, we don't pay much attention until we hear the news, but behind the scene, and it's always been like this, there's always been relationship important between governments, different countries, and, uh, and they affect ultimately the legislation and the way that we do live our life. On the other hand, I can say that what we do matters <laughs> when we vote and we put those people there to do things for us. So it's a, it's a two-way street. And in this two-way street, things are changing really fast lately. And uh, of course, technology. It's right in there. So today we're going to talk about international relationship, the global view and how we could or could not cooperate into making technology serving us as citizens than the opposite. And in order to do that, of course, you don't want to hear me because I'm already bored of myself. We have a, a great new guest for the first time from uh, ET. T.H. Zurich, Dr. Miriam Dunn-Cavalty, and uh, I'm going to say hello, and I'm going to let her give a little introduction about herself, and then we talk. Thank you, Marco. Hi, everybody. It's my pleasure to be here and to talk to you about my uh, favorite topic, which is the politics of cybersecurity. I am a senior lecturer at ETH, which is a technical university, but we also teach political science. So that's where I'm coming from. And I focus not only on cybersecurity, but on security studies more generally and international relations. Uh, I got interested in the topic many years ago, actually, in the late 1990s, if you so want, early 2000s, when I studied the Kosovo conflict and, you know, had a, a look at how the state, like the US mainly, but also NATO started using this, um, the information sphere to wage 
war. Uh, that's how I got into the topic. And then ever since it's, uh, as most of you will have noticed, become more important cybersecurity. Uh, and I also consult um, companies and governments, mainly the Swiss government, because I'm in Switzerland. Um, and I've always tried to bridge the gap also between academia and the more practical uh, knowledge that we have out there because I believe uh, we need to integrate the different types of knowledge somewhere uh, so that we can learn from each other. And that would be a good thing, right? <laughs> uh, it's necessary, yes, if we ever want to solve problems and, you know, make things better. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, kind of like a, a, a sh the sharing of the knowledge in the crowd, right? We talk about the crowd a lot lately. Oh, and, yes. Oh, yes. And when you say year 2000, you know, I always at least talk about start thinking about the beginning of social media and how we interact there and then of course how you could manipulate information but let, let's maybe we could start from as we should a little bit from the past and how we got here in a very short uh you know amount of time but you know you you mentioned the power of information but you know propaganda has always been at the core of of a lot of um political changes, or at least trying to maybe not make changes, and how information maybe that was going underground, that's, I mean, information is who we are as human, as a society. If we couldn't communicate, we probably wouldn't be who we are. So how did, and this could be a question for 300 podcasts, technology change the way that, I don't know, we interact with each other and we affect who govern us, the government. Yes. <clears throat> you you just said it, huh? 300 hours at least. But um, <laughs> uh, you, I, I think what you mentioned is really important that um, uh, information has, of course, always been, you know, considered also a resource of power. Um, goes back to, you know, very, very old writings. But the means with which technology, uh, sorry, information is um, um, uh, distributed, of course, has changed. And that changes the game, if you so want. So the question of who has power over information, who can distribute it, um, how fast is it distributed, how far is it distributed? Those are the questions that have really changed the game since, you know, uh, the last, uh, let's say, uh, 30, 40 years. And uh, one very important thing is obviously that when we look at older ideas of propaganda, it used to be quite clearly state actors um, who were in charge of, you know, that kind of activity. Um, also, usually it was a very clearly defined type of conflict where that was just a tool in conflict. And that has changed. So the actors have hugely diversified. It's definitely not only states, it's states, semi-states and non-state actors of all kinds that basically jump on the bandwagon also because they realize, you know, also from looking at, at, at you know, the, the cases out there, how much can be done nowadays with, um, well, you can call it manipulation, but also just using information in different contexts to further a specific goal. And that's kind of where companies, private companies come into play. Uh, you know, yeah. Back in the days, you say it was a state affair, mm -hmm. right? It always sounds like a, a movie title. Uh, but then companies... Uh, start having this leverage because they are the channel. It's not a public television or a public state radio that does that. It's not 1984, <laughs> George Orwell doing this, uh, but it's actually s private companies that allow to give this voice. And then there is this big thing between 
Are they news sources? Are they just the medium that allow this information and therefore they can't control it? They don't want to control it? Um, how does dynamic has changed and, and how things like, you know, the European community with GDPR, for example, had to step in because maybe things were going a little bit out of control? Yeah, there's many layers to this question, of course. So first of all, yes, private companies. I think the main interest or the, the, the main thing I would outline here is that um, when you look at states and the field of, you know, uh, propaganda, it used to be also very clearly security related. So you had a security goal, a strategic political goal, whereas companies obviously don't have that goal necessarily. They can have it, but normally they act in an economic space. And the interesting thing is that nowadays these two spaces interact very closely, where the economic and the, the security space start interacting in ways that sometimes really produces bad effects that are not wanted, but it's also because of this logic that, that is, uh, you know, fusing together, but sometimes also uh, working in different means, uh, ways. So the, um, I mean, the, the, the big problem, if you so want, is also the algorithms, you know, that social media platforms have that are economic based because they want us to stay on the platform. So they want us to give they want to give us the good news uh, that what we want to read. But that also has distorting effects on the whole information sphere. And you could say, well, that's not necessarily a problem if it's only about, you know, consumption and I get the, the ads that then lead me to buy a, a better product. Okay, I can accept that. But as soon as it then gets interlinked with questions of democracy in the sense of, you know, when my the the, the information that I get shapes my political attitudes, well, obviously it's not just economical anymore. So that's sometimes in this field that has gotten so hugely complex, <clears throat> certain decisions taken by specific actors have an impact far beyond their particular sphere. And that is when you know, the international community then tends to get nervous. So you're right, states have stepped in or, you know, the European Union as an, as a more than a state um, are stepping in more and more nowadays and try to regulate certain aspects of that interaction that does not seem beneficial or that seems to have negative effects um, that they're not okay with. The balance is really, really delicate, though. Because, you know, on one side, unless you're a dictatorship, right, you can't just, or, or a king, oh, today I'm going to make the decision for everyone. You have to balance things. You have to power the economic power, what the citizen want, the people want. And so we, we're not going to name the elephant in the room because I think everybody is thinking about who we're thinking right now. But at a certain point, are we just okay to just, let things go the way they are, there is, or there is this friction between between those that do want an intervention because it's getting out of control with to be so free, or do we do we have a balance on your opinion? And can state maybe really get together like they did in the European community and say, you know what, we're crossing the line. This is a GDPR for privacy, um, and we we're going to do other things without being controlling the market. So I, I know it's very mixed question here because I don't think I have a question in my head. I mean, a, a, I understand. an answer in my head. Yeah. 
Um, yes, so it's very delicate. And I think one of the big problems, even bigger than it being delicate, is that many people don't actually talk about the same thing, even they, even though they use the same vocabulary. Uh, I think cybersecurity is a case in point. You know, people say cybersecurity, but, you know, if you then dig deeper, it can mean so many different things. You know, it can be just the security of a company network. It can be about the, the, the tools that you use, the concepts that you use, or it could actually mean, you know, something tied to national security, where it's about the security of the nation. And, and, and bringing that together is super hard. So in certain areas, we see the ability to cooperate. Um, and data protection is, of course, something that almost everybody has an interest in um, for a variety of reasons. Of course, you also need to define how much data protection or how much privacy you want. That is this big, you know, tension between state ability to um, do surveillance, um, uh, plus, you know, our, whatever, civil rights um, to basically, yeah, keep things private. And that's a tension that needs to be negotiated because you cannot just decide, you know, this is the level of privacy that's good for everybody. You will have so many different opinions here that you need a democratic negotiation, if you so want, or at least a, a debate about it. And that also happens. You always see, you know, that with these areas of tensions, you have a state doing something and then suddenly civil society uh, pushing back very hard because they're not okay with it. And then you also have to consider that not even, you know, the state is a unitary actor. I mean, there's different parts of the state with different interests and that goes for all the states in the world. Uh, and then the same uh, civil society is also not unitary. They don't speak with one voice and that creates a huge and very complex ecosystem if you want you know of different questions that then always kind of we it looks like cybersecurity or the cyber domain is ungovernable because of this because there's so many different aspects that are still in flux and that people try to solve and if I may, I mean, you say, you know, you have laws or regulation. Yes, but that's usually just the starting point of more uh, discussions uh, because it's, you know, it's also that is in development. If you look at data protection and how it has evolved, yes, there's now a solution. But, um, you know, going forward five, ten years, I'm sure there's going to be different aspects that we need to reconsider there. Yeah, you made a really good point because then law are very old and they get older and older, faster and faster. I mean, we are still trying to control computer privacy um, and and, uh, and patent laws with uh, with mm. law in the United States made in the in the nineties and the eighties and just renewing and adding a few things. But technology is changing too fast. So I love your opinion on. How well or how bad are we doing into educating people, educating the people? You said, you know, knowledge is sometimes we say the same term, but we mean different thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we don't even know what it means. We just go with the wind. Sometimes we just embrace technology without thinking about the consequences. And if there is something that in cybersecurity we have changed the conversation is the fact that Anybody that says I'll make a company unhackable, we love, right? I mean, yes. honestly, that's marketing. Yep. So we need to be more prepared to the worst to happen and how do we react to that? So I'm going to, I was looking at what you 
wrote some papers and, uh, and, and one captured my attention, the two words. It, it, it says a permanent insecurity. So we, we have to live with this. It's a constant presence, this insecurity. Mm-hmm. Can you define that and how can we live with that? Yes. Can we not? Yeah, this is an interesting, um, you know, discussion that even goes far beyond technology and cyber, but it's probably the easiest to explain through the cyber field because everybody knows that there's not 100% security in cyberspace. You can really protect as well as you want. You can spend millions and you will still have loopholes. So that has um, led to a shift in obviously also many, you know, um, organizations, et cetera, that prevention is important, risk management is important, but you have to have the plan B. Um, you know, some call it business continuity plan, the crisis management plan, et cetera, but the key word here is resilience. And the resilience term is super interesting because you find it in so many different other aspects. You find it, you know, in psychology, so we want humans to be resilient, uh, but also in other uh, security domains like terrorism. So, you know, the the question really is how do we deal as a society with the knowledge that security is unobtainable? Security is a state that we would want to reach. It's maybe a value, but everybody who actually deals with security knows we're never secure. There's always risks. That's the nature of life. You cannot get rid of all the risks in no aspect of your life. And that in terms of the society needs to happen and it's not we're not there yet we need to communicate and i say we so everybody who is you know dealing with security and cybersecurity, etc we need to be able to talk to people about the not only likelihood the certainty that we will have uh, incidents even bad incidents you know uh, ones that involve critical infrastructures that we will have outages it doesn't even have to be because of an an attack from the outside also because our systems are so complex that you know there's many things that can go wrong okay so what does that mean we need to talk about this how how can we be a society who's tolerant towards the certainty that we will have security incidents And in general, the debate goes in the completely wrong direction. You know, we are very, like the entire Western world, at least, is getting more and more risk averse. We try to pretend, you know, we can spend more money or do this and that, and we have less risks in our life. This is not the future. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the the big events in the last few years, be the financial crisis or now, you know, the the, the COVID pandemic, et cetera, show this. This is the future. It's not going to be a happy, uh, you know, a utopia of everybody lives together peacefully. This is not what we are going into. So I, I cannot think about the role of mass media let's keep calling still mass media, but media in general into this, because I feel like the perception of the non-expert is exactly what is influenced by the way that these news are presented. I mean, there is a data breach. All right. Well, big news. Of course there is a data breach. (laughs) We're all connected. Mm -hmm. Stuff happened, right? You just said that. So maybe do we need to change the, the perception or the way we present the news so that everybody can accept that and become to be, start to embrace this this situation of uncertainty and, and and accept it yeah the question is how and who does that huh? who does it and how do you do it um i think 
Yes, so media has a huge role to play. I remember during, you know, the after 9-11, etc., there was a debate also in Europe where, you know, we had quite a few terrorist attacks since there was a debate about the media and their role in this. And also among media, um, you know, uh, representatives, there was this debate. But um, it's hard because they also are in economic space. And, you know, especially with media moving online, um, you want to capture people's attention. So you need to have some new version is there because if you just say well oh, nothing happened you know big company was breached but who cares that is probably also not what we want in uh, society I'm not sure I wouldn't want uh, them to say who cares but I would just say you know we, yes. we need to be ready yes. for it it's not like oh my god this really happened yeah of course it did <laughs> yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I think the, the, the big question is how do you get to that change who has to uh, start it I have to say, in Europe at least, and I mean, that's the landscape I know. I've noticed in the last, I'm saying five years, even 10 years, you have spe specialized journalists now, technology journalists, because technology is so important. So newspapers themselves, so the news the media themselves invest in knowledge. And these people are smart because they don't start from zero. And I remember, you know, 15 years ago, you always had to explain. You had to start from the beginning and tell them, well, yes, of course, they were hacked, but it's not so bad and it's normal and these mm. kind of things. Yeah. But now there seems to be a baseline knowledge there in some media, of course. Um, and I think this is going to increase. So you'll have specialists there. And going back to what you mentioned before, the educational aspect, I think something that we need that's something that I see, uh, you know, potentially arising in the future is people that live in more than one world. So it's people that know about technologies. They don't have to be the super experts, but they do have a fundamental knowledge of the, no of the technology they're talking about. But they also know enough about policy, for example. They, are all, they also know enough about law, about legal aspects. They also know enough about how companies are run. They also know enough about, you know, media, these kind of things. And that's missing. So we're investing a lot across the world in, um, you know, the, the IT specialists nowadays. So you have a lot of specialists that emerge and that's, that's good and we need those. But those bridge builders, the ones in between worlds, that is something that I um, is missing, is still missing. And it's hard because our educational systems are not built on bridges, but usually in, you know, strict uh, disciplines. Yeah, uh, black or white, right? Good or bad. And, and all of that. Yep. And yep. we can't live like that anymore. There is too much going on. And when, when you're talking about being in, in between world, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the metaverse and how that maybe <laughs> when I even complicate more things. But I swear, I go there a lot, but we're not going to go there now. What I would like to do is actually go back to kind of the beginning. So we talk about society a little bit, about the role of media and knowledge. What is it happening um, like I said at the beginning, behind the scene, which is not really behind the scene, is the, in the political uh, community at a global level. Well, we do understand that you can be hacked by a, a, an agent state in Korea or in uh, you know in Russia, or I'm sure Americans are not there and watching. You know, it, there is this thing, and so there is no boundaries anymore. And I think that's really hard to accept. You, you'd mentioned the pandemic. Mm. I see the virus of the 
the pandemic that we're living with an ex perfect example. That's why they're called virus in, in computer world, right? Mm -hmm. They don't care where the border is. So if we don't cooperate, uh, we just don't have really good chances to succeed. So I would like to know from you at an at a international level, policies, infrastructure that cross boundaries, borders too, and there is no boundaries. What is being done so far? Is, is it moving fast enough? Huh. Um, no, it's not moving fast enough. There's one problem. You're, uh, you know, this image of the virus is a very good one, but it doesn't really fit the reality of cyber operations as we nowadays call them because there's human beings behind it the virus doesn't differentiate it just goes for anybody that and right. that's true for computer viruses but in the last um, 15 years of course states have invested a lot of money into capabilities to actually do cyber operations and the interesting thing is that's a world that we don't see that often we uh, occasionally you know there's an incident and then it gets publicized and we talk about it but the interesting thing here is how the practices of especially the intelligence agencies have shaped this norms sphere, if you so want. You could say, you know, this is horrible. We don't have any rules. Uh, this is, you know, it's going to blow up. No, because over the years they have developed almost like red lines, which are not fixed and they're not written down, but uh, through, you know, punishment, uh, like sanctions, but uh, indictments, um, attribution, public attribution, you form this space. Now, this might seem abstract. And again, it's not written down, but it's not true that there's no rules. They're just not discussed on the level of the UN. They're really rules of practice in the intel field. On the level of the, of the United Nations, there have been many, many attempts in the UNGG, um, the governmental group of experts, to come to an agreement. And there, have, there are um, three documents, and the last one is from this year, consensus documents. There's 11 norms in there that are not binding. They're voluntary, non-binding norms. Um, and they're about cyber conflict. They're now not about, you know, cooperation. Um, there, if it's about cooperation, like if it's about cables using, you know, common spaces and protocols, there we never had a problem. But with the, the question of state behavior, it's tied to conflict. And there you have these 11 norms. And they're very general, of course, because you needed a consensus. But it's still interesting that they're there. So it's not like, you know, nothing moves. But because they're non-binding, it's a very unstable, a very unstable kind of space. And, and what you do see is that the big actors like the US uh, very actively keep building that norm space, also through bilateral uh, discussions, like with, with um, um, uh, Putin earlier this year. Um, so it's a work in progress. Um, and for many, you know, it's, it's, it, you don't have a good feeling about it because it is work in progress and you never quite know. But that's the reality, I would say, of the international. So as soon as, about, as, soon as it is about the use, the strategic political use, uh, so more the military intel sphere, it's very hard to, you know, find enough powerful states that would say, I, you know, I, I don't want to use this space anymore. They want to use it. They want to use it in the best optimal way. And that's why they're not stopping themselves and they don't stop others either. But I'm understanding that we are at least at 
that point where if you have these, even if non-binding and generic rules, that there is a basic agreement that there is an issue, right? And the yes, fact absolutely. that I, I cannot not think about the climate change, right? You know, the, the, the Paris Agreement and now, you know, the Glasgow and, and how, yeah, you're going to have that country that said, no, I'm not going to do it by you know, 2035, maybe by 2050, and then at least you have this conversation. I mean, there, there is this understanding that if that gets out of control, it's not good. And cybersecurity on a different level, like not, not comparing it to, to the climate change, but like the virus in a way, just to give the understanding of that's where it's going, right? So yes. the fact that we're talking about, I think that's really important. Are there... On your opinion, the as a researcher and in the researching community, are there certain things that maybe you you may think as, you know, we're not doing these and and these would help a lot. So yep. maybe the, the politics are affecting too much the decision politics with you know air quotes. Yes, um, there is a very interesting topic that we also in my research group keep thinking about, and that is really the information that we actually have about the threat landscape. And this is not necessarily the state's fault. It's really an ecosystem, if you so want, between academics, um, private companies, especially threat intel companies, uh, and states as well. And there is there seems to be uh, skewed or biased information out there, public information. I'm talking about publicly, um, you know, available information, not information that you can buy. Where um, we hear a lot about the uh, the classic, you know, bad guys uh, uh, quotes, <laughs> um, be it you know North Korea, Russia, China, uh, Iran, um, sometimes Israel. Uh, but we know a lot about their activities, capabilities. Etc. But we have huge blind spots. We simply, um, in certain areas of the world, we simply don't know what's going on. We don't see it because nobody collects the data and actually, you know, publishes it. Um, the same is true for certain actors. For example, we have a huge gap in understanding uh, civil society organizations and how much they are affected by cyber operations or cyber threats because they often do not have the money or the skill to actually collect the data and they don't have the money to pay a threat intel company. So we have huge blind spots. Now you could say, well, maybe that doesn't really matter. You know, what really matters is the ones that I mentioned, the big ones. But I don't think that's true. And for us researchers, it would be great to have better data. And, I, and who should develop that? Well, it, potentially, you know, in collaboration. So different research groups, different political scientists with IT security spe specialists. So again, we need to bridge certain gaps to be able to have a better idea even what is going on, you know, in terms of what kind of threats, who is attacked, what kind of um, also who is behind it. So what forms of, of cyber uh, threats uh, do we see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because also the, what we hear in the media, it's just, it's definitely not everything. And you could say, well, what would change if we knew everything? Well, we don't know. But unless we actually have a better empirical picture, we will always kind of replicate what we already know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, and I think even in the cybersecurity community, the importance of sharing intelligence, right? I mean, that, that's pretty much where you're coming to. It's, yes. it's like, I think about, you know, you, you want to catch a bad guy that is going through 
across states and borders. You're going to have different entity, uh, I don't know, the, the Interpol to collaborate with FBI, to collaborate with someone else. And only that way you can succeed. But you can't say, all right, I'm going to give you information A, B, and C, and that's it. Then everything is top secret because yep. <laughs> you're not getting a, you're going to get a, a head start on, on the bad guys. Yes, exactly. So that's, that's something that you, you feel like it is missing. And that's kind of weird because in my perception, at least researchers, they've always been the one that operate across borders. It's like a community. That's why we have the internet, I mean, in a very basic way. And is it <clears throat> political then? Uh, no, it, this is political within academia, actually. Uh, yes. Mm. So, of course, we do collaborate. We are also forced by the structures of academia to be international, but not within disciplines, I mean, beyond disciplines. So, the interdisciplinarity is difficult in, in academia because everybody's more and more specialized, you know, as, 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 as time goes by. But also the so-called transdisciplinarity, where you actually would interact with the public sector. And we... Universities are not good at that. We've been preaching, you know, the necessity, but it's not how you make careers. And as, as, as long as the incentives, you know, don't change where you can actually make careers that way, it's not necessarily going to change. So you don't see many, you know, really interdisciplinary collaborations in this space, unfortunately. Mm. And I hope that this will change I think the time is ripe, you know, but it's it's not there and we're in 2021 and the cybersecurity issue is not new. Yeah, I feel like uh, you need a cultural change and cultural change don't happen in a, in a day, right? It's not, you're not a more, a more low that every year you, you double the power of computing. <laughs> you don't change culture in a year. You don't change. It takes time. I think one of the issues, if I so may, um, is also that cybersecurity is just understood as a technical issue still, you know, across the board. And in many universities, you would actually, you know, be immediately led to somebody in the computer sciences. Well, mm. yes, of course, they have a very important uh, part to play. But unless we understand that a technical solution is also never going to be enough, Again, you know, the cultural change will probably not happen. And you just said so. I mean, computing power, the ability to do big data analysis, the data sciences, again, are thought more technical than social. And I think that is a cultural change that I would want to see. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to go on artificial intelligence and ethics with, with you now, but we could have another episode about this. I, that's something that, uh, you know, social engineering and, and a lot of other things where computers have really not much to do. They may amplify the effect, yep. but they're not, they're not the, the, the main tool to do it. So we already talked about a lot. And uh, the last thing I'd like to close with something that you know, I like to put my uh, my thinking hat, maybe the, the the crystal ball, and look into the future. I'm not keeping you accountable on it, but how do you see things moving as we we go forward? Uh, or what what do you think? I don't know. The next few years are going to look like. I think we're only at the beginning of a lot of, um, you know, unease and unpeace in this uh, uh, field. I don't think uh, this is get, going to get better. I see the technological sphere not necessarily as a sole driver of societal change, but I would always like to point to the interac interaction effects. And if you see that society, for whatever reason, is, you know, full of tensions, then obviously this is also going to be seen in the technical sphere. And that might, you know, it might make it worse. Mm 
um, maybe there's a few solutions coming. It's a very complex and interactive system. So I'm thinking, or I believe that we will, you know, see much more cybercrime. Also because, well, I mean, the more we digitalize, the more interesting targets we add, the more interesting it becomes. Uh, we will also see more states, you know, trying their capabilities. So this will create more unease as well. We will have incidents. I also think we'll have bigger incidents in critical infrastructures than we have had them. Hard to say whether it's going to be because of an attack, but, you know, uh, could also be because, uh, yeah, things go wrong. Um, so for me, going forward, um, I don't think we're going into a peaceful, uh, um, you know, phase. Uh, quite the opposite. And I think this idea that we need to be resilient, that we need to think about outages, that we need to think about the possibility to live, um, you know, despite certain breakdowns in society, also in terms of the infrastructures, becomes more important. And politically, I would wish for policymakers to also talk about this, you know, to talk about this problems, not to kind of pretend that we are, you know, secure if we spend more money for X, Y, Z, but that we talk about these, these ruptures and try to, you know, find common ways. Because if you think society is divided, then we could be united in, you know, the fear or at least the thought about how do we deal with outages in, in critical services in the future. I couldn't agree more. Uh, learn how to live with change and learn how to live with insecurity so that you're ready for it. And I think that's, exactly. that's the message. And it's, it's not going to be that one button or that technological innovation that is going to change that. And people need to understand that. And, and maybe, again, to close this, anybody that has the power to share information, I think it, it has... As they say, with power come great responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So maybe a little less clickbaits and, uh, and a little bit more understanding and preparing our society to what we have ahead. It's not scary. It's just the way it is. So I would deal, also say with the it, pragmatic right? view. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Perfect. Well, Miriam, thank you so much for this uh, interesting conversation. As I usually say, if we make people think, and have more questions when they finish listening to this than answers. I think we did the right job. So I hope that's the case. I invite people and you to share resources. If you have a few links that people can read to get to understand a little bit more what we talked about and, and, and get interested, get curious and, uh, and don't be afraid to learn more. So with that, thank you so very much. And we'll catch with you all next time. Thank you, Marco. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io We 
hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.